Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Drew Arnett. Drew is a singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist, best known as the founder of Strange Advance, a very successful Canadian new wave slash prog slash pop band in those heady days known as the 80s. After a 30-year hiatus, Strange Advance is back on tour celebrating the 40th anniversary of their debut album, Worlds Away. Let's get your 80s juices pumping again with a quick refresh before we talk to Drew. Some of the strange advanced hits that you will today fondly remember include We Run... Away. Worlds away with memories of killing tiger dreams. The second that I saw you. And love becomes electric. Welcome, Drew, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am in the lovely little town of White Rock. BC, by the ocean. It, uh, it's shaping up to be another nice day here, and I'm just fine, thank you. Recovering from recovering from a gig, but apart from that, all right. Well, talk about doing a gig in 2023, but as opposed to doing a gig in 1985. Well, let me tell you something. In 1985, we had a lot more roadies than we do now. <laughs> I understand that one of the big changes, I guess, would be from the business perspective, Drew, uh, back in the days when you were at your peak, big record companies, they did everything. Today, I get the sense you're more in charge of your own uh, affairs. Oh, it's a shock to the system, I got to tell you. Because uh, the last time we toured, you know, I basically just showed up and they pointed me where to go. And, and you know, I, and I went and we did and that was fine. But now it's like a, a do-it-yourself world. And I'm learning all sorts of aspects of the music business that, you know, I never really had to deal with before. So I, I'm kind of grateful for it because, you know, as you age, you know, you need your brain to, to stay active and, and uh, you know, continue to learn and to grow and whatever. So that's happening for sure. It's a steep learning curve. But uh, it was a lot easier in the 80s, although it was a lot more expensive. Because back when, when you're signed to a major label, they pay all the bills. You know, you never have to see the bills. It's like, we want to do this, we want to do that. It's like, yeah, no problem, we can do that. But we're charging you for it. And, and you know, meanwhile, you know, your debt to the record company grows. And uh, and, and I, I'm pretty sure we're still deeply in debt to those, if they were still around. What is Drew Arnett up to today? And what is the status of Strange Advance in 2023? 
Well, uh, uh, like I say, you know, we did a gig in Victoria on the weekend, and and so we've got pretty much a week off before we head back east and, and do a few dates there. Yeah, it's just it's just awesome to be able to finally get out there and and re-meet these, you know, 15, 20-year-olds, uh, you know, from the 80s, and it's like, see how we've all turned out and stuff. So it's uh, it's pretty awesome. And of course, these days, you know, social media, you know, you're in, you're actually in close touch with your fans, you know, which never could, could never happen before. You know, I, I have a big box somewhere of, of, uh, you know, letters from, you know, like fan mail from fans. It's like actual envelopes with letters in them. You know, it's like, you know, so now I just guys get all sorts of, uh, you know, met, you know, emails and, and Facebook messages and whatever. So, uh, it's a lot easier now to, to reach out to, you know, the people that you admire and stuff. So it's pretty cool. Well, I have to compliment you, your website, strangeadvance.com, very up to date, tons of info. Do you kind of enjoy this closer direct fan contact? I, I do. I do. I, I probably would have said I, I wouldn't enjoy it. You know, uh, back in the day, it's like uh, I'd, I'd like to sort of separation of church and state or something. But uh, but now it's like I really appreciate hearing all the stories. You know, it's like I got married to this song or, or you know, this happened on this particular important occasion of my life. And, 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 and your song got me through, you know, hard times and stuff. It's like very gratifying. You know, it's like, oh, you know, that's awesome. You know, we made an impact on people's lives. So so it's great to hear those stories. Well, with your permission, let's go all the way back and get your story, which will, of course, lead us to the strange advance story. Drew, where were you born? And describe your upbringing. Well, um, I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, you know, uh, to, uh, funnily enough, a Scottish family. And when we were, when I was about three, uh, we moved to Canada. Uh, my mom's sister had married a Canadian soldier. And she said, oh, it's beautiful here. You know, this is where you should be. And uh, so uh, we moved to New Westminster and, and BC, just a little town outside of Vancouver. And uh, and I had, you know, I, I've, I whenever I used to talk about my early life, I, I used to think of like, you know, leave it to Beaver or something, you know, because it was a, a very, very, you know, middle of the road, uh, just... A solid, loving kind of experience. I, I remember one time I was uh, uh, in a uh, sort of a, I don't know how to put it exactly. Uh, it was like an, an enlightened kind of new age uh, group of people and, and who were all sitting around talking about their disastrous childhoods. And, and I was up next. It's like, what, what am I going to say? You know, it's like, no, I, it was smooth as glass. You know, I had no issues. I had no problems. So it was a very happy childhood. Let's just say that. And I understand that uh, your first professional gig as a musician was actually playing drums in your father's dance band. Yeah. At the age of 14. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as soon as I, I mastered uh, the drums to the point where I could, you know, sort of be a, a help, not a hindrance, um, I talked my dad into letting me go out and play with him because he had a little dance band. He played in big bands in, in Glasgow and stuff. And, uh, and then when he moved to Canada... You know, he started to meet the local musicians and uh, and get asked out to do gigs and things. And and yeah, so it was like a, it was basically a dance band, and I drummed for them. And and I can remember, first of all, I made money, you know, which was awesome. You know, I mean, it was like considerably more than my allowance, so that was pretty cool. 
But uh, I remember you know, sitting behind the drums, and of course, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, it's like, I want to be playing like Zeppelin or something, you know. And, and instead, here I am playing this old fart, you know, music and whatever. So, and I would like practically be falling asleep behind the drums because there's not a big, you know, it's not a big uh, high energy kind of thing. But in later years, uh, you know, near the end of my dad's life, he, he you know, was playing with a little group and they lost their drummer. And he said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going, well, you know, what about me? This was way post Strange Advance. I'll come out and I'll drum for you, you know. So I got to go back out with him. And and that's the time I realized, wow, listening to all that music from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and stuff really did have a, a big influence on me, you know, especially melodically and stuff. And uh, And I just loved it. I loved being out with him playing in front of all these beautiful old people who would come to the bandstand with tears in their eyes and say, I haven't heard that song for, you know, 45 years. And, and, and they just, they just loved the music. And so did I, you know, as it turned out. He certainly appreciated it more the second time around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, something else interesting, Drew, uh, that will appeal to listeners of our vintage is that in the late seventies, you were handling the lighting for Sweeney Todd, whose big hit we may recall Roxy Roller, 1976. Oh, who doesn't remember that? Well, let me tell you something. That was an exciting part of my life. Daryl and I had actually, uh, we had a, a cover band called Slan, and and we did like, you know, all the all the English hits and stuff, and, and we were into the whole glam scene and, and uh, you know, loved Bowie, T-Rex, Mott the Hoople, all those people. And then we, I left the band and and I and there there was a financial settlement, you know, because you know we'd bought a PA and all this stuff, and so with my money, I then went out and bought a lighting rig because uh, Slan we shared a rehearsal space with Sweeney Todd, and uh, and they had just lost their lighting person. Well, I had always done, you know, I set up the lights for Slan, and uh, and and I would hire someone to run them, but I loved the whole lighting world. So uh, the next thing you know, I'm the lighting director for Sweeney Todd. And and at that time, they had the number one song in the country. And uh, and it was so exciting because they were showmen. You know, Nick Gilder was, was definitely a great uh, front person. And the whole band dressed in white, you know, in white drums and white instruments, everything, which was great for a lighting person, you know, because it, it catches all the color and stuff. So anyway, I, I it was... It was the closest I, I think I'll ever get to Beatlemania because it was one of those things where, you know, we'd be playing a lot of community centers and high schools. And and, and as soon as the doors open, you know, the hordes would, would run for the stage and it's like, you know, don't try to get in their way. And they would just be, you know, screaming and going nuts and stuff. So, yeah, that was interesting. Well, the Daryl you refer to is Daryl Krong, and together through a few iterations— uh, Slan, Metropolis, added in Paul Iverson, you became Strange Advance. Why the name Strange Advance? Well, um, you know, anyone out there who's ever started up a band knows that learning the songs, you know, can be difficult, but coming up with a band's name, way tougher. You know, I mean, everyone's shouting out, what about this, you know, Sparkle Spider? It's like, eh, nah, I don't think so. You know, everything sounds stupid. You know, I remember when I first heard, uh, you know, Flock of Seagulls, I thought, no, seriously, 
Your, your band is called Flock of Seagulls. You know, why, why don't you just pile of poo or something? I don't know. It's just ridiculous. But soon you just accept it. You know, that's a, that's a totally fine name. No problem. So, um, so anyway, we were trying to going through the list, trying to figure out, you know, what, what to call ourselves. And at one point we actually called ourselves Metropolis. And that was our going to be our official name. Except we find out that there's a band in Germany called Metropolis, and they want like $100,000 to give up their name. It's like, well, we don't have $100,000, so we'll, we'll have to come up with a new name. And then one day, my sister's boyfriend comes in and goes, you know, what about Strange Advance? Strange Advance. It's like, okay, well, it's got, you know, Strange and Advance have the same amount of letters, and, and it looked good when it was written down. And, 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 and we kind of like to think of ourselves as being a little you know, off the wall, a little strange. And um, so we went with it. And then, uh, I, I don't know, like a few months later, I thought, I, I got to find out. Uh, oh, I know, like uh, he, he had actually been listening to the radio and there was a DJ called Jack Cullen and he used to run old radio shows, radio serials uh, from, you know, again, the 30s and 40s and stuff. And there was uh, uh, one of the, he was talking about this one radio show, Strange Advance. So I called up, I called up the the DJ and said, so tell me about this this radio show, Strange Advance. He's going, huh? Strange Advance? No. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you mean Strange Events. It's like, oh, he misheard. <laughs> so it was just an accident, accidental name thing, you know. So uh, we became Strange Advance. And then years later, um, there I am uh, in the studio because our producer, uh, Bruce Fairburn, uh, was a very popular producer, and he was he was making a record for Aerosmith, and they had asked me to come in to contribute some keyboards. And uh, and Stephen Tyler's going, so you playing a band? It's like, yeah. What's it called? Strange Advance. That's the stupidest name I've ever heard of. It's like, mm, okay, well, sorry. <laughs> not Stephen Tyler approved. No, not at all. Now, you guys were formed in Vancouver, and you got encouraged by another local Vancouver guy some of us may recognize named Brian Adams. How did Brian Adams move your career ahead? Well, you know, Brian, as everybody who knows Brian will agree, he is a go-getter. You know, he has got a lot of energy. And so he was just like, you know, he would reach out to anybody um, you know, he was like friends with, uh, with Daryl and a couple of his friends and, and, and I, I got to know him and he would call me up and ask me how things are going. What are you working on? And, and, and I would play a song and he would play me whatever he was working on. And, and he's always super complimentary. Oh, that's a great track, man. That's going to be a hit, you know, and all this kind of thing. And, uh, and then later before we actually toured, Daryl was playing in a band called, uh, well, actually before Strange Advance, Daryl was playing in a band uh, called Remote Control, a cover band. And Brian decided, you know, I want to go out on tour across Canada. And he had, uh, I think the only thing he had on the radio was Let Me Take You Dancing. And uh, we're going way back in his uh, discography there. But uh, And Bruce Allen, his manager, was like, no, Brian, you know, it's way too soon. You don't want to be on tour. You know, let's wait till we've got something to tour, uh, a good record and stuff. And uh, But no, Brian insisted. So he uh, just hired Daryl's band, Remote Control, as his backup band. And uh, and when they were on the road, you know, Daryl would play him our latest demos. And he's going, wow, you know, this this is great stuff. 
uh, would you mind if I pass this on to somebody? And sh- and Daryl says, sure, you know, hands of the cassette. And uh, and Brian gives it to Bruce Fairburn, our local, you know, uh, sort of hotshot producer, who also loved it and basically, you know, got us the deal. And uh, yeah, so I'm forever in, in Adam's debt as far as that goes. You know, who knows what would happen? Because I'd already done a couple of trips to Los Angeles, uh, you know, hitting up the major labels and stuff. And, and uh, and you know, everyone's complimentary, but, you know, just wasn't their cup of tea, you know. But then when Bruce Fairburn got involved, you know, he approached uh, Capitol Records. And, uh, and it was a weird setup at the time. Our A&R guy... There was a, an A&R guy in Canada, Dean Cameron, who actually worked for the U.S. company. Uh, he was just sort of a foreign posting or whatever. And and so Bruce sent the, the, the demo to Los Angeles uh, Capitol Records, and they sent it to Dean Cameron, who said, I already know this music. I love this music. You know, because I had dropped off a tape, you know, like a year prior to that, and uh, and I guess uh, I, I learned an important lesson. Um, uh, you have to label everything very carefully uh, because he had the tape, but he didn't know who it was, you know. And so anyway, uh, we got the, we got our record deal, but it, it wouldn't have happened without Brian Adams. Well, the late Bruce Fairburn, of course, produced albums for Loverboy, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Van Halen, ACDC, Kiss. When he worked with you, he was already an international success based on producing Loverboy's first two albums. Drew, it must have been a real confidence builder to know Bruce Fairburn would be guiding and working with you on your debut album. Oh, absolutely. Um, and he was a really nice guy. You know, he was a it was a he was like sort of the opposite of what you would expect. Uh, you know, just a very laid back. Our sessions were so civilized. You know, we would break for dinner every night because he would go home and have dinner with the wife and kids. You know, very anti-rock and roll, but, you know, nice to be civilized. And and, and in the beginning, I was talking to somebody about this uh, the other day. You know, I didn't have a, a huge amount of respect for Bruce as a producer because I, I thought, okay, you're going to take our songs and you're going to, you know, go into your bag of tricks and, and sprinkle your fairy dust and and make this, you know, incredible. You know, you're going to turn this into a hit record. And that's not what Bruce was about. Bruce was more like, I'm going to get the job done. Um, you know, I, I guarantee this record will be done on time, under budget. And and he was a people person. He could work with, you know, disparate uh, personalities and stuff. I remember hearing stories about, uh, you know, him calming down Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, who just, you know, were at loggerheads, you know, they hated each other. And, uh, but, you know, all the bands he worked with, he just made it all work together. You know, he just made the pieces fit. And, and, and he had talents and directions that I wasn't even aware of when he was working with us. So he, he was very responsible for, you know, the way Worlds Away sounds and stuff. Uh, you know, he was, he was, he had an adventurous, you know, spirit. And was willing to try things, and uh, and you know, because we were out of his you know wheelhouse, really. You know, we he'd never done anything like that before. But uh, no, in, as as time went on, I, I I my respect for him grew and grew. You know, well, that 1982 debut studio album was Worlds Away with the hit single Worlds Away. Drew, what do you remember about the immediate jolt of success? Well, 
Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, first of all, having songs on the radio, you know, hearing yourself on the radio was a bizarre experience. Uh, first of all, bizarre in that, the, you know, when you record a song in the, in the studio, it sounds a certain way. And of course, you're listening back through, you know, the world's best speaker system and crank it. You know, this sounds awesome. And when it goes to radio, you know, they sort of work their magic on the song. And uh, and some really good recordings sound terrible on the radio, you know, just due to the process that, that, that the music goes through. But uh, but anyway, so it was weird to, you know, actually hear how the song sounded on the radio. But, you know, you would get used to it quickly. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, something we we suffered from, you know, imposter syndrome. You know, uh, we Daryl and I would look at each other going, what the hell are we doing here in the studio with Bruce Fairburn and all these great guys and stuff? And it's like, oh, the record company made a mistake. You know, it's like, we're going to get a, a phone call. It's like, oh, I'm, it was strange events we wanted to sign. You know, it's like, oh, no, we want our money back. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was and, and when you say success, you know, I guess like, you know, obviously there was like, you know, some financial success, but, but of course you don't get that right, you know, in the very beginning, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's in the pipeline and it'll show up in six months or a year and a half or whatever. So we were still like poor musicians, just, you know, uh, struggling to get by, uh, in the very beginning. So, uh, but it was, it was awesome. Let's face it. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, your credibility gets, you know, a, a nice boost and stuff and, and uh, and all of a sudden, people are are nicer to you. It's like, oh, you're that guy. It's like, well, yes, I am. <laughs> well, now you got to prove yourself, and you followed up your second album was creatively named two, but creatively because <laughs> you actually used the number two. In uh, 1985, the hit single from that was "We Run." Now, through this second album was mixed by Scott Litt. What did he do for a small band called REM after he worked for Strange Advance? Well, you know, he, he's gone down in history as the man who allowed the world to hear Michael Stipe's vocals. Because prior to that, you know, Michael Stipe hated the sound of his voice, you know, much like John Lennon. You know, John Lennon didn't want to hear his voice, like, turn it down, turn it down. It's like, no, John, you know, that's the whole point. People want to hear you. So anyway, Scott Litt was like a hungry engineer slash producer, and and he wanted to prove himself. He had a lot to prove, and fortunately, he he did it using you know our song "We Run." He took "We Run" to the power station in New York, which is a very famous recording studio and a very expensive recording studio, and rented out mountains of very expensive outboard gear and stuff, and spent three days working on one song, which is like at the time was, you know, pretty much unheard of and and had to keep calling up uh, the record company, you know, can I do another day? Okay, can I do another day? It's like, oh, and Dean Cameron, bless his heart, you know, he, he loved the band, he loved the song, the music and stuff, so he, he, he gave him the go-ahead and, and so he worked his magic on We Run. But the weird thing was, after doing all this phenomenal work, I hated the mix. You know, the first time I heard it, I thought, no, no, this is not how it's supposed to sound. Uh, you know, because we had been we'd been working on our own mixes. Lenny DeRose, uh, another awesome engineer who lives in Toronto, 
you know, he was he was just doing spectacular work. And uh, and Scott Litt took a totally different approach. And, you know, of course, within a week or two, I, I loved his mix. And uh, and it made all the difference. You know, it uh, it just sounded great on the radio. And, and uh, yeah, we loved it. Well, somewhat amazingly, Strange Advance had never played a live gig prior to 1985. So you added musicians to the lineup as session players and supported the first two albums with a tour of Eastern Canada. Uh, how did you transform into a live act without having done it before? It must have been a real shock to your sister. <clears throat> well, it was, especially for me on an individual basis, because, you know, in the past, I was the drummer. And uh, and drummers, as you know, get to hide out in the back of the stage and, you know, uh, and just basically watch the whole show go down. And, you know, it's a, it's an easy kind of going gig. And now I'm uh, playing keyboards, you know, which I'm like barely adept at. And uh, and I've, I've got to sing at the same time. And it's like, oh, I've never done this before. You know, can I do it? So, yeah, it, it was like I was I was just terrified at the prospect. And then uh, when we finally, we went out and did a couple of warm-up gigs. I know one of them was in, in Water. actually our first gig was in Waterloo, which we're playing in another week and a half. It's the first time we've been back to Waterloo since our very first ever gig, you know, so it's kind of cool. But uh, we did a couple warm-up gigs at, at two universities. And then on day three, you know, we're, we're doing Ontario Place, the forum, and uh and and we're and we're playing in front of 10 12,000 you know screaming fans and stuff and and I thought oh I'm going to despise the whole touring thing but actually I really enjoyed it you know it was fun yeah so so it was it was great and and you know we'd put together a good band and stuff I should say that after the first album uh we put a band together and we 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 found this band that were playing a club a local club they were from Winnipeg called the instructions and i fell in love with the uh, the drummer and the guitar player uh derek giles and and ed shaw who you know both live in toronto and so we were you know all set uh unfortunately daryl's father passed away just like on the one of the last rehearsals i drove him home and there's an ambulance parked in front of his house and 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 he comes back you know with this you know stunned expression on his face my dad just died and and it was just uh, him and his mom left, you know, and and we were actually due to leave like you know three or four days later. And he said, "I I can't do it, you know, I can't leave her alone at this time." And and of course he couldn't. So uh, you know we had to pull the plug on that. And uh, and so Ed and Derek ended up you know joining Images in Vogue and having a very successful career there. Yeah, so th- that was the first iteration, and then of course, you know, we put the next band together and uh, and had a blast. That's that's a, a, a interesting connection to Images and Vogue. So they were also from the uh, the Vancouver scene, so to speak. Well, actually, they were on tour. They they were playing a date in Vancouver, at, at, well, not Images, uh, the Instructions, and, and that's when we, you know, uh, very rudely stole their guitar player at their drop right. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> Everything's fair in motherfuckers, as you know. If you are enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, Blue Rodeo's Basil Donovan, Chalk Circle's Chris Tate, NPR World Cafe's Raina Duras, rapper Chaclair, and the Box's Jean-Marc Pisapia. 
How They Did It, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Drew, let's talk Juno Awards. You were nominated twice, 1983 for Most Promising Group of the Year, and in 1985 for Group of the Year. Did you attend the Junos and any fond or not-so-fond memories of those events? Well, you know, the, it was it was pretty cool being nominated for a Juno. And, uh, and of course, uh, you know, when we were nominated for uh, you know Most Promising Group or whatever, well, we knew we didn't want to win that. Because that was like the kiss of death. You know, you will never be heard of again. <laughs> it's like, sorry. And and thank goodness we didn't win. And then a couple of years later, you know, we get nominated for best group of the year. And it's like, okay, clearly it's been another mistake. Who's, you know, as much as I love Strange Advance, we are not the best group in Canada. Especially when you're up against Rush, you know. Yeah. It's like, mm, I'm thinking maybe... <laughs> They'll get the nod. <laughs> but I can remember, uh, you know, we, we went to that uh, Juno Award. My my experience with award shows up at that point was like, you know, my family would sit around every year and watch the Academy Awards. And, and you would always hear people who would say, oh, I, I'm shocked. You know, I, I didn't prepare anything. You know, it's like, and it's like, yeah, right. And then they had this whole speech memorized and they could rattle on for five minutes. Well, Needless to say, I had no expectations of winning best group and prepared absolutely nothing. And and I'm I'm one of those people, I really like to mull things over in my head. I, I'm not like, you know, off the top of my head, you know, I, I would never be able to come up with the you know the the appropriate speech or whatever. But I wasn't concerned about it because we're not gonna win. And then the next thing I know, they're announcing our category and I've got a cameraman on my face, I'm going well, what's this guy doing here? You know, it's like, oh, no. Maybe he already knows we're going to win. And I've got nothing to say. You know, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I'm going to look like a moron up there. So I can remember sitting there just praying, please don't let us win. Please don't let us win. Because I thought something weird has happened. You know, Rush and Parachute Club have split the vote and somehow we've, you know, shot up the middle. It's like, oh, no. So anyway, thank goodness we didn't win. And I was like, and I saw, I thought in the and in the intervening years, I thought, how many acts have ever like prayed not to win the award? <laughs> For those keeping a score at home, uh, your dreams of not winning uh, came true, <laughs> and uh, the the actual winners for our most promising group were the Payolas. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and in 1985, the group of the year was not Rush, but Parachute Club. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. Both pretty good, so you, you can't go wrong. No, no, absolutely not. And you know something? Um, my only other Rush connection was on when we went, actually went out in 1985 and toured, um, we had uh, uh, our drummer, um, uh, David Quinton, uh, he he was like a a great guy, and uh, and he was like a, a, an old punker, played with Stiv Baders and all these old legends and stuff, the Dead Boys. And um, anyway, uh, after his stint with us, I don't know if he if we turned him off music or what, but he went back to school, and became a music lawyer, and and he's a very well established music lawyer, and uh, and Rusher, one of his you know clients. And uh, and a, a year or two ago, I was talking to him, 
and he was telling me that uh I guess Neil Peart, he was living in LA at the time and, and they were talking about, you know, various things they had done and 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 David Quinn said, Yeah, and then I I drummed for a while with a Strange Advance. Strange Advance. Oh, Worlds Away. I love that track. And and I'm going, Neil Pert knows who we are. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> Even though at one point, many years later, earlier, you know, we were up on the same category, but I and I won anyway. It was it was very cool, and and Getty Lee turned out to be a fan as well, and that's you know pretty awesome. It's great when you get to hear those stories. Yeah, yeah. Now you followed up with a third album in 1988, "The Distance Between." The great Randy Bachman played on this album. Yeah, you know, I'd gotten to know Randy, uh, you know, years before that. As a matter of fact, I actually worked for Randy for a period of time. He was a, a very, you know, s- sort of, I was going to say secretive, but he, you know, he liked to keep things close to his chest. Uh, he didn't like to work with strangers. And, and because he knew me, you know, uh, you know, it's like, hey, would you like to do this? It's like, sure, sure, I'll come down to your place. And I did a little work in the studio. I did a little work in construction, uh, almost ruined his studio. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and Randy's a great guy, and and was happy to uh, to help out and and contribute to the record. So, yeah, and and we've played with uh, many other great guitar players. Yeah, Drew, I want to ask you about how much, when, and how does much music and videos play into the story of Strange Advance? Knowing that much music only launched August nineteen eighty four, you were already one album done, second album on its way. What do you remember about being told to shoot this thing called a video, and and what was your reaction? Well, our first experience was with was with MTV because we actually were signed to Capital LA, and of course, uh, you know MTV was already you know happening, and uh, you need to shoot a video. It's like we do really. We we weren't a really highly visual act, you know. We didn't re- we weren't like a Duran Duran. You know, we're all you know really great looking guys. You know hanging out on sailboats in the Mediterranean or whatever. That wasn't us. And, and and really, it was about the music for us. So this was just sort of a diversion, you know, just uh, something interrupting the process. And uh, But anyway, they said, no, you got to shoot some videos. And, and, and it was cool because they found a, a director that they wanted to work with. And, uh, and he was uh, in New Orleans. So we we flew down to to New Orleans to shoot the first two videos for She Controls Me and Love Games. It was quite an experience because it's like my first experience on like a film set, you know. And uh, and I learned that you know because I love movies. Um, I I've written screenplays and stuff, and and you know with the the vaguest vaguest hope of ever you know getting anything you know made. But I, I just enjoy the process of writing. But I learned on the video shoot, oh, it's an ugly place. You don't want to be on on film sets because it's so boring, so boring. Just stand around and wait. And I made the mistake of buying a a new pair of boots to wear in my video shoot. And and after I'm standing in these boots for a few hours, it's like my feet start to swell because like these boots were not well fitting, you know. And uh, I can still remember at one point going, oh, I, I, I've got to take him off. Don't do it, Drew. Don't do it. It's like, no, I've got to take him off. I, I need a breather here. Well, you know, it was fantastic, you know, the relief. But then I had to put it back on. Oh, my God, the pain. 
So anyway, uh, we weren't fond of the whole video thing. And in the beginning, of course, even though I had an interest in film, nobody wanted to know. You know, it's like, do you, do you have any good ideas for us, Drew? It's like, no, said no one. Um, so they would just do their thing. But but I did uh, get to meet really cool people on, on the set that, that I kept in touch with over the years and and uh, I've had a lot of fun with, uh, especially John Davis, who was the art director. And he and he had designed this phenomenal set. And when, when he went to the warehouse to see it, we found out, uh, you know, uh, John's Folly, uh, which was designing a set that was like uh, taller than the roof of the <laughs> the building we were shooting in. And it's like, no, we can't film it because his set actually went into the rafters. You know, it's like, okay, there's, you know, we can't, we can't use the top of your set. So you, you never got the sense of the actual size of the set, but it was like amazing. You know, it was a very, very cool set. So yeah, there were just great aspects of doing it, but you know the whole video world. We weren't into it. We'd we'd like to avoid it wherever possible. And uh, and also, the other thing is, once we did finally have some creative input, you know, our ideas turned out to be all too expensive to actually shoot. The record companies, no, we're not doing that. You know, that's fifty thousand dollars to spend on that. You know, it's like, you know, and and you're at the end of your your budget is going to end up being, you know, millions of dollars, which, you know, wasn't really possible until people like Michael Jackson and, you know, Madonna or whatever decided, well, you know, we're spending the millions. We're going to, you know, this is an investment. Well, we didn't have that kind of coin, so it just wasn't going to happen. So it was always like slightly disappointing. Oh, this isn't the way I wanted it to work or to look, you know, but anyway, you just suck it up and move on. Well, after about a 30-year hiatus, you are now touring to celebrate the 40th anniversary of your debut studio album, Worlds Away. Why and how did you resurrect Strange Advance? Well, you know, I guess Strange Advance really always lived in my head. And in the in the intervening period, I was continually writing. You know, and not everything was sounding like it should be on a Strange Advance record. You know, I, I, I have eclectic tastes and stuff, but... But, uh, you know, Daryl and I had toyed with the idea of putting the band back together and, and get out there, play some dates and stuff. And we'd always talked about it and played around with it. And uh, But it was when David Bowie passed away, uh, when the, you know, just the reality of life smacked us in the face. It's like, wow. You know, he he was like, you know, one of the main reasons we got together as a musical combo. You know, we both just loved Bowie so much, especially the early days. You know, we thought, well, it, you know, he's gone. You know, we're the next generation. You know, we're going to be going next, you know, and nobody knows how long they've got. So if we were, if we're ever going to do this, you know, we better do it now. And, and that was the thinking. So, and that, and also... Uh, we we had a little push uh, because Ed Souza, I I don't know if uh, you or anyone's heard of him, but Ed Souza is like a a local promoter in in Toronto and does fantastic work all for charity. You know he's a very successful businessman with a strong love of the '80s, so he puts on all these concerts and uh, and he would be on the phone to me, Drew. You know, come on, put the band back together. Come on, play a gig, and it's like. 
well, you know, maybe at some point, and we're not ready for that yet. And but he would keep pushing me and stuff. So, so eventually, uh, it's like, all right, you know, we're we're diving into this. And and as far as Daryl was concerned, it was like, you know, uh, Drew. Uh, to be honest, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. But you know, but you've got to move ahead anyway. You know, if I can do it, I'll do it. But you know. If we don't do it now, it's not going to happen. So that that was really the Bowie's death was the prime motivating factor, though. Well, I don't know whether you want to call us surreal or a fun fact, but current Strange Advance member Sean Dillon comes from Winnipeg, where he played in a cover band that used to cover, yes, Strange Advance. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that, that was pretty cool for Sean. As a matter of fact, uh, I'd I'd known Sean when we were, you know, when 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 we realized that we would need at least a, a backup person in case Daryl couldn't do it um, on any particular night. So we're looking for singers, and uh, and there's lots of great singers, but Daryl's got a very you know particular sort of sounding voice. You know, he's got a lot of personality and character in his voice, and try to find somebody who could you know kind of you know have hints of that in their voice. It was tough. But uh, years prior to that, I had been in um, what was actually Bruce Fairburn's studio, visiting a friend who was working on a record that Sean Dillon was uh, recording. And Sean wasn't there at the time, but uh, I, I, I was listening to a playback of a song. I go on, I know what that chorus needs, you know. And 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 Paul, the engineer, said, you know, okay, well, lay it down. Are you, are you sure they won't mind? It's like, oh no, 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 it'll be good, you know. So. So I laid down some stuff, and 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 the band loved it, and uh, and Sean, of course, uh, uh, you know, it's Sean and I became friends, and and then when we were looking for singers, somebody said, "Well, what about Sean?" I'm going, "Sean, I forgot all about Sean," and uh, you know, tried that out, and it worked great. So uh, there you go. Well, certainly something that changed Drew big time is you went from leading edge analog '80s tech with synthesizers to your 30 year hiatus. And now you have to get up to speed with 2020s era digital technology. You went from lugging literally suitcases full of heavy equipment, and now I assume you just show up with a laptop. Well, it's practically that. It is practically that. And and I, and I have to say, much as I loved all the old analog synths, and, and they are fantastic, it's they're not the easiest things to maintain. Um, things are always breaking down, uh, having to be adjusted, tuned, etc. And now, with the advent of uh, soft synths and and uh, you know everything in 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 the one box, you know, uh, wow! When I first started using computers, it was just you know like an Atari ten forty. That was like the you know the epitome of uh, technology at the time. And things have progressed so much. That you know, I've got all the sounds I need. I've sampled all my synths, and and I've got all the sounds I need in my laptop. So essentially, I can just show up with a laptop, and you know, I'm ready to play. But back in the day, the big thing was a Mellotron. Oh, it is a Mellotron. Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me started. Uh, okay, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the Mellotron was uh, essentially the first analog sampler. Um, now it's all digital, but back then they re- would record sounds on tape, and and you would hit a key a key on the keyboard that would press uh, something against a pad against the tape and the tape head, 
and the tape would get pulled through the machine and play back whatever uh, you know had been recorded. And uh, I loved the sound of the Mellotron. In the 70s, I was a big prog rock fan and uh, loved Yes and Genesis, King Crimson, all those people. And, and they used the uh, Mellotron uh, quite a bit. And I just fell in love with their music and particularly this sound. You know, the Moody Blues, the Beatles, everybody had used it, you know. And um, when I graduated high school, um, I borrowed a couple thousand dollars from my dad. I flew to London, England to buy a Mellotron. Well, of course, I get there and, you know, Mellotrons are quite expensive beasts. So I, I realized I, I'm only going to be able to buy a used Mellotron. But fortunately, there was one in the Melody Maker. And uh, I go around to this guy's house. It was quite interesting. It's like under the under the windowsill, he's got this Mellotron with a lovely doily over it and, you know, and and uh, sort of China ornaments and stuff on it. He says, well, I'm not using it. I, uh, I see that. <laughs> uh, but he was like the old uh, uh, road guy, road uh, uh, keyboard player for the animals. So it was like, okay, you know, this is kismet. This is meant to be. So I, I bought his uh, Mellotron shipped it up to Glasgow. Uh, my uncle built a, 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 key, a road case for it, which weighed like, you know, 400 pounds. Cost me a fortune to ship it back to Canada. But um, I was the only kid in town with a Mellotron, you know. Yeah. And of course, Daryl and I were doing slant at the time. And, and we were doing all these Bowie things, Space Oddity and stuff. Uh, we actually used to do Watcher of the Skies by Genesis. And we sounded legit because not only did uh, Daryl pull off, you know, great Bowie impersonations, he all we also had, you know, this instrument that made us sound just like the record, you know. So as a matter of fact, one of the first things I did with it, on somebody suggested, you know, why don't you call this you know, local recording studios and see if they might want to rent it? And uh, so one of my first sessions was uh, Dreamboat Annie by Hart. Um, you know, so my Mellotron's all over that record, you know, and that was like my little introduction to the professional studio world, you know, which I never left. Well, this, of course, is Toronto legend, so we have to ask for your Toronto memories. In 1985, as you mentioned, you played Ontario Place on the since-disappeared rotating stage at the Forum, and then fast forward just last year, you performed at the recently reborn Alma Combo. Drew, what are your Toronto memories? Well, it's it's funny, you know, you talk about that revolving stage. I remember, uh, you know, we played, I don't know how many play, times we played there, two or, or more times. I'm not sure. I can't even remember. That's the what the what the 80s do for you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember the revolving stage. Um, I learned something that uh, that everybody who's on a major label learns. The, the label insists on their employees attending shows, and uh, whether they want to or not, sometimes. And the stage would revolve. Well, there was a like sort of a VIP section was right up front. And uh, and all the and all the, you know, industry people, you know, radio people, anybody, you know, who wanted to you know check out the latest sensation or whatever, they'd go to the show and check it out. But they're all bored and they're like, you know so blasé about the whole thing this is just another one in a you know hundreds of shows that they've attended and so i can remember this stage revolving around and it's like you know the fans the energy from the fans is just phenomenal you know it's it really is uh it's a very energizing thing 
And and so you, the stage would be revolving around and all these people, you know, screaming and singing the lyrics and, you know. And then you would get to like this black hole section where all the, ra- all the record executives are just sitting there with their arms crossed. It's like, oh, oh, it's another band, big whoop. You know, and it's like, oh, that the energy level just dropped there. What happened? You know, it's like, can those people please not sit so close to the stage? Can't get back in the back there. You don't want to be here. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, you know, when I, I actually ended up moving to Toronto for a few years. Well, actually, I lived in Pickering, but uh, at when we moved there, um, I stayed for the first month or two downtown. And I've never been a downtown kind of a guy, you know. I've always lived in the in the suburbs, and uh, and I thought, oh, I'm going to hate this. But actually, you know, Toronto is a very oh, I, I guess it still is obviously a very uh, thriving city and lots going on. And uh, it was just electric, you know, being down there. And so I really enjoyed that. But we ended up uh, getting a place in Pickering, and that was uh, you know back to the burbs. Uh, you know, and that's fine. I don't have any problem with that kind of a lifestyle. Now, I enjoyed my time in Toronto, although I arrived during a heat wave, and uh, and and people are going, "Oh, it's it's not normally this this hot," and and we had to like you know get the place air conditioned and stuff. We were just roasting. You know, it's a, a lot hotter there than in Vancouver at the time, although Vancouver is catching up. And then what happens? Winter, and it was like a terrible, terrible winter. And they said, oh, it's never as bad as this. It's like, yeah, not until the next winter, which was worse. And and I can remember one time I had a uh, an appointment downtown with, you know, the, the record label. And I couldn't get in my car. It was like frozen solid. You know, I heated my key. I, I tried, I, I squirted this stuff that's, you know, de-icer or whatever. It's like, no, nothing worked. Fine, it was a hatchback. Finally, I got the hatch open. And crawled through, and I thought, well, by the time I make it to downtown, you know, my car will be warmed up. Nope. Still can't get out of my car. I've got to go exit through the hatch downtown. It's like, who is this guy crawling out of the the back of his car? But uh, no, I I really enjoyed Toronto. And plus, I I had been warned, you know, like the Vancouver music scene, you know, was sort of a tight-knit group, uh, but friendly. And Toronto, no, no, no. They're they're not uh, they're not nice people in Toronto. You know you're not going to enjoy the experience. You know, and it was exactly the opposite. You know Toronto was so open and and caring and giving and 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 people would you know were just happy that you were there and 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 would happy to help you out any way they could and and so I had a great experience there. Excellent. It's really great to capture all these memories from you, Drew, and to hear what you're up to. And of course, what you're up to now is touring with the 40th anniversary of Strange Advances' debut album, Worlds Away. Where can we best follow you and know about your upcoming tour dates and get tickets? Well, I, you know, we, we, uh, the website's the best place to go, strangeadvance.com, and we have links to, uh, you know, to tickets and stuff there. But it's like a building thing. You know, it's a building thing because, uh, first of all, it's an expensive band to tour. Um, you know, we've got six people in the band and a crew. And by the way, What's exciting for me is that for the first time, we're able to pull off visually, you know, what I always imagined, uh, you know, strange advanced music to, to, you know, sort of equate to. And we're working with this visual artist, Tim Hill, who, who used to tour with Skinny Puppy. 
and uh, and so he's doing all these projections and thing and lasers and whatever and and so finally we're, we've arrived you know we're doing our like hey you know if you saw the Pet Shop Boys or New Order or or you know Depeche Mode or whatever you know we're doing on a smaller scale mind you <laughs> you know we're doing like you know a, a, as cool a show so so that's a a, a very fun aspect for me but uh, but anyway what happened was of course COVID you know, screwed up the whole touring world. And of course, we were shut down, you know, the band had rehearsed, you know, we were six days from leaving for our first date, and the plug got pulled. And, uh, and that sucked, but it sucked for everybody. And uh, so now, uh, you know, what happened was, um, you know, first of all, everybody's out there on the road, and all the venues just get booked. And, uh, oh, you'd like to play there? Well, you're six in line. If none of those other, you know, five people want it, you know, you're going to get the date. And you have to, yeah, but we need to plan another date beside it, you know, to make it financially viable. But we can't commit to that date if we don't know if we've got this date. And it's very, it's the life of a promoter is a lot harder than I thought it would be. So anyway, we're just adding as we go. As soon as we can commit to a couple of dates together, then you know we'll post them and we'll let the, we'll we'll let people know. But if they should join up the the mailing list and uh, which is on the website, and then we will keep people informed. Excellent. So strangeadvance.com is where we go. Drew, great meeting you, and I want to wish you a continued success going forward. Thank you very much, Andrew. My pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jornet, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.